we desperately need the church across America to get involved and engage with fatherless youth and broken families and provide the type of mentoring that needs to take place to sustain and build the foundation and guide these young people. Our guest this week on First Person is Ken Turner, who has been called by God into a ministry of helping at-risk teens, especially those who find themselves in trouble with the law. Welcome to today's conversation. I'm Wayne Shepherd, and we'll talk with Ken in just a moment. These weekly interviews are for the purpose of learning how God uniquely prepares people to serve Him in meaningful ways. And although the details that emerge from each conversation are different, they all point to the same result, lives that are changed by the gospel through those who are obedient to it. You can learn more about us online at firstpersoninterview.com. You can even listen to any past program right there at the website. Go to firstpersoninterview.com and click on the Listen button for the complete list of interviews. Plus, I hope you'll join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash firstpersoninterview. Ken Turner started out as a youth pastor, but God had something even better in mind for Ken and summoned him to jail, a story you'll hear him tell now today on First Person. I work with um, what we call high-risk and fatherless youth. And uh, and really, I got into that after being a full-time youth pastor on a large church staff um, and doing that for about 20 years. And in 2008, there was this moment that God brought me to and began to lead me down this path, which was a completely unknown path. I have no idea what I was getting myself into, but... But um, it turned into forming a ministry that was really focused as an outreach to young people in our community that the church just we just had not reached yet. So you spend a lot of time in detention centers and that sort of place where where troubled youth uh, sometimes end up, huh? Yes, I do. Um, and if I could just tell you where kind of how it started, we one morning I was reading my Bible early in the morning, just sitting at the dining room table, and I was reading through the Book of Psalms, and I came across a passage of scripture that spoke about um, people that were hurting. And and I know that we read things like this every day, but for some reason that morning um, I couldn't move past it. I, I tried to, and I, I kept thinking, well, that's, you know, I realize there's a lot of people hurting. And as I tried to move on, God kept bringing me back. And I, I kept rereading this, this passage of scripture and I just told the Lord sitting there at the table, I said, I don't know what you're trying to tell me to do, and I don't know what you mean by this, but I want you to know that I'm willing to listen to you. And I had a meeting downtown Indianapolis that later that morning, and I couldn't get this off of my mind. I kept thinking, well, where are the teenagers in our community that are hurting the most? And immediately I thought about a teenager that might be locked up. So I, I pulled into the parking lot of the juvenile detention center, and I didn't know anybody there. I had no connections to anybody on staff. And I walked up to the front door, and there was an officer guarding the door, you know, with a gun and a metal detector and everything that goes into that. And he said, you know, can I help you? And I just started talking to him. And I said, I would like to know if there's a person here that I could speak with that could explain to me what the needs are. I'm a, I'm a youth pastor in the community. And and he didn't want to let me in, and I won't tell you how that all went, but it was about five or ten minutes of me just talking to him 
and he finally led me into the building and introduced me to a lady named Tanya Hill, and uh, which which was one of the most, um, I guess, life-changing moments of my life because I began to learn what the needs were, and it turned into starting a ministry. Some people look for trouble. You are looking for troubled youth to help. So <laughs> that's, <laughs> yeah, uh, that, yeah. that's the way God works, though, isn't it? It's amazing to see how, uh, how, how people respond to his calling and obedience. So I'm so glad you did. In that conversation that morning, when I got into, I got about five locked doors into the facility, and I really didn't even know why I was there. I'm, I'm really honest with you. I had no idea why I was there. I just knew that God had put something on my heart that morning, and I needed to do the due diligence to find out what was happening. So when I met with this Tanya Hill, who is the volunteer coordinator, phenomenal Christian lady who worked with ministries that come in and do Bible studies and, and minister to the youth, she looked at me and she said, you know, I've only been on this job for six months, and I've been praying about the needs that we have. And she said, there are a group of boys in a unit in this facility that had come to her, and they said, we want to know if you could find someone that would come in and, and lead a Bible study with us on manhood, because we don't have fathers, and we don't know how to be a man. Hmm. And she looks at me and she said, can you do that? And I said, absolutely. When can we start? And she said, well, I want to have it on a Monday night. And so the beginning of this was we started with a a manhood Bible study. The boys wanted to call it the Man Up Bible Study. (laughs) And, uh, And they said, we want to know how to be a man. We don't know how to live like a man. We don't know how to walk like a man. We don't know how to treat a woman. We don't know anything about manhood. And that's because they didn't have any models. They they were, for the most part, fatherless, weren't they? Yes, about 85 to 90 percent of the young men in juvenile detention centers are fatherless. And so the first night that I came in, um, and of course, I'm this, you know, uh, white guy that lives on the north side of town in the nicer communities, and, and this is probably, you know, 75 or 80 percent African-American inner-city teenagers who who live in, you know, neighborhoods that are just, you know, impacted deeply by gangs and drugs. And and the first night I came in, I just brought my Bible. I really didn't know what to expect. And so I began to lead them in a Bible study. There were 16 guys in the room. You know, they sat in a semicircle. And I opened up my Bible, and I just began to lead them in just a very practical Bible study. They listened really well. And uh, they didn't really say much. It was really quiet that night. And when I reached the end of our Bible study, I, I prayed with all of them, and I thanked them for listening. Hmm. And I, I picked up my plastic chair that I sat down in front of all of them, and I carried it over to the wall. And nobody said anything, and I thought, man, I have no idea if this was effective. And as I was walking away toward the wall on the other side of the room, one of the boys spoke up, and he said, I want to thank you for coming tonight. And I turned around, and I said, well, you're welcome. And he said, and God bless you. And it caught me off guard, and and then he started clapping, and another guy started clapping, and then all of the guys erupted in this, like, standing ovation-type moment, and they just kept clapping and clapping and clapping. And I stood there just in shock. 
And I thought, you know, my Wednesday night youth meeting when I preach to our church teenagers, they don't typically <laughs> give me a speaking ovation. And so I was just overwhelmed by this response. And then one of the guys spoke up and he said, will you come back? And I said, yes, I'm coming back. And he said, no, will you promise us right now that you will come back? And I said, yes, I just said, I I am planning to come back. I'm on the schedule to be back. And he said, well, you don't understand. There are different units in this building, and when you come back, they may put you in with another group, but we need you to promise all of us right now that you will come back into this room and that you will teach us. And I said, okay, I promise you that I will talk to the coordinator and the staff members and, and make sure that I come into this unit to teach you. And I drove home and I told my wife that I felt like I had just taken a trip across the ocean and landed in the middle of a mission field. It it was very, very moving. How unexpected that must have been for you. And yet, I mean, again, it was all God, but how rewarding it must have been to know that there were were hungry people there who wanted to hear what you had to share. Really was amazing, and, and the the mentality I think that I probably had going into it is is maybe like a lot of people is I thought well there's going to be a bunch of young people here that are going to be very hard, and they're not going to be receptive to you know a man walking into the room with a Bible, and yet at the same time what I found was just the opposite, and I began to learn things about them. As a matter of fact, if if, if you could if you could imagine. There's about 6,000 teenagers every 12 months that are brought through juvenile court in Indian, in a city like Indianapolis, and there's about 2,000 that are actually detained. So in a year's time, I worked with 2,000 of the most dangerous teenagers in the inner city of Indianapolis. And that's one city. That's just one city. That's just one. And this is happening all over America, isn't it? It's happening all over America. And... What I can tell you, though, is that when you sit down and you speak to them, what you find is that most of them are very eloquent. Um, You would think that some of these kids, that their fathers were doctors or lawyers. I mean, they're not talking and they're not mumbling as if, you know, they're just street kids and they don't don't speak clear. They're, They're very eloquent. Many of them are very smart. They're very sharp but they don't have anything. Um, this, is the, this is the story that I would hear all the time. Uh, my, I've never met my father, and my mom is a prostitute. What am I supposed to do? I've never met my father, and my mom is a drug addict, and she's, she's never, ever sober. What am I supposed to do? When I go home, we have electricity, and then we don't have electricity. We have food, and then we don't have food. Sometimes we don't have food or electricity for days and days at a time. Sometimes mom isn't home, and then she doesn't come home before I go to bed. She may not come home tomorrow. Sometimes she's gone for three days, and sometimes she disappears for three weeks. What am am I supposed to do? So these are the stories that I hear, and from what the staff tells me, about 70% of these young people have committed what they call a crime of survival. Uh, they stole some food at the convenience store because they were hungry, or they even got arrested for skipping school a lot 
But as it turned out, they were missing a lot of school because they were taking care of a younger brother or sister. So it's a mission field. There's no doubt about that. Coming up in a moment, we'll continue with Ken Turner. He'll tell us the story of a powerful encounter with a young man named Daniel. Next time on First Person, we're going to hear from Dr. Warren Wearsby. Paul wrote to Timothy, and he said, Now the things that you've heard from me, you tell other people so they can tell other people. And in my writing and my preaching, all I've done is say, Here's what God has taught me. Take it. See what you can do with it. He's a beloved pastor and author who's still writing today. And you'll hear his story next time on First Person. My guest today is Ken Turner, who has founded High Impact Teens, working with troubled youth. He's with Ken Turner Ministries, and we'll put a link on our website. Uh, Ken, give me a bit of a of a big picture view of the problem that exists. We talked about this a moment ago. You started in Indianapolis, Marion County, Indiana, and thousands of teens there, and there. Uh, thousands of teens incarcerated all over this country. What are some of the underlying problems? Well, I think first and foremost, um, one of the greatest problems is the problem of fatherlessness. Um, And I mentioned earlier about 90% of the teens that are in a juvenile detention center are fatherless. And then beyond that, I think the other great problem is, is just a parenting crisis. Um, We have so many moms that are trying to raise their teenage sons and daughters or their children um, without a lot of help. And and so they need a lot of support, a lot of parent training, and just uh, just a lot of guidance. And um, and I think thirdly, we we desperately need the church across America to get involved and engage with with fatherless youth and and broken families and provide the type of mentoring that needs to take place. To, to sustain and build the foundation and guide these young people, and then also to offer the support to a, a struggling mom. Well, Ken, we've talked about the problem from uh, a vantage point of the big picture. Let's bring it down on, on a personal level. These aren't uh, a group. These are individuals. These are young men, for the most part, that you're meeting with who are fatherless and who uh, have spiritual needs, and you had an experience with one young man that I want you to take some time to tell that story here today. I'm uh, um, sure. Yeah, I appreciate that. This there was a guy that I met one night. His name was Daniel. In the room, if you can picture sitting in a room with 16 boys who are who are in a juvenile detention facility, and so we're in a, what's called a unit. And in that unit, the boys are sitting in a half circle, and for I guess for sake of security, they're sitting the tallest the shortest. So the tallest guy in the room is the guy to my far left, and the shortest guy is the guy to my far right. And so that night, I was leading this Bible study, and there was a guy in the room that I had not met before. He was the guy on the far left. He was the biggest, most muscular guy in the room. He was he was actually 15, but he looked like he was about 25. <laughs> kind of intimidating, was he? Uh, he was very intimidating, and he had the look on his face and the square jaw and the expression that, that I wasn't somebody that I really wanted to get on, on the wrong side of him. And so I started into the Bible study, and we didn't know each other. And, of course, you can imagine that a lot of these guys come in, and they're very guarded. They don't trust anybody. And they don't trust men. Men have let them down. Men have abandoned them. 
And so we started into the Bible study, and he, he just leaned forward, and he put his head kind of down to his knees and was just staring at the floor. And, and I don't typically uh, aggressively, you know, really call these guys out, because you don't want to ignite in them. They're all, they're literally warriors. I mean, they have to be warriors in the street just to survive. But there was something inside of me said, this guy needs this. And so I looked over at him, and I said, young man, you need to sit up. You need to sit up and you need to look at me. I want to see your eyes. You need to hear this. This is so important. And he actually sat straight up in his chair and he just began to listen. We were studying Psalm 139 that night and I was talking about um, how that God had, had literally searched out their entire life and he knew everything about them and they were fearfully and wonderfully made and even before they were born, God had already counted their fingers and their toes and that he thinks about them every day more times than the number of the grains of sand. And and as I began to lay out this uh, very personal and intimate picture of God in their life, he was he was engaging more and more deeply into this into this study. As a matter of fact, at one point I talked about you know how God had created every one of us and I said some of your some of you have hands that are big and strong, and I held my hands out. I said, bigger hands than my hands. And he actually held his hands out in front and, and began to look at his hands. Like, this is, my, this is how God created me. So at the end of the Bible study, um, I closed in prayer, and this young man who started out so disengaged, he um, looked at me as soon as I finished my prayer, and he said, can I talk to you? And I said, yes. And he said, will you please stay around for a few minutes? I said, "Uh, sure, I have some time. So he grabbed his chair, and he literally ran across the room and put a chair by a table. And I sat down next to him, and he looked at me right in the eyes and leaned forward, and he said, Ken, I need to be saved. Could you please show me from the Bible how to get saved? And most of the time, teenagers in this environment, don't speak that language so clearly. (laughs) And I said, sure, I've got all the time in the world. And so I opened up my Bible, and I began to take him through the passages of Scripture that would lead him to a personal relationship with Christ. And as I'm reading, I turned my Bible around, so I'm reading upside down, and he can see the words. And he literally took his finger, and he placed it on the Bible, And every word as I read it, he rubbed his hand across the page of the Mm. Bible, and he touched each word as I was reading the Bible to him. And so when I finished reading the, you know, reading the passage, and I showed him, you know, basically a biblical explanation of of how to become a Christian, I looked at him and I said, now, I don't know, Daniel, if you've ever heard this before, and I do want you to understand that this is your decision, and it's between you and God, and and, it, and I'll be glad to pray with you, but if you need a little time, you know, to absorb this, I understand, because I'll be back soon. And he said, oh, no, I need to be saved, and I want to be saved right now, and I want you to pray with me. And I said, okay, well, let's bow our heads. And so I said, I'll be glad to pray with you. And, and as we bowed our heads, I, I thought he may be uncomfortable, and I started to, to start off a prayer, and he interrupted me. And he prayed the most incredible sinner's prayer and asked Christ into his heart. It it was the most amazing prayer I've ever heard. 
And when he finished praying, he looked at me and he grabbed me by the hand and he said, can we pray again? And he smiled and I said, all right, what do you want to pray about now? (laughs) And he said, I want to pray for my family. And so I just bowed my head and he took off praying for every one of his family members by name. And so, so on the way out the building, out of the building that night, I passed one of the staff members in the parking lot, and, and she said, how did it go tonight with your Bible study? And I said, well, Daniel Daniel was in my Bible study, and he got saved, and she started laughing. And she said, you must be very confused. She said, who did you say got saved? And I said, Daniel Ferguson. And she laughed again, and she said, Ken, that's you must have him mixed up with someone else, because she said, do you have any idea who he is? And I said, no, I don't know. I never met him before. And she said, if there's a hundred teenagers in this building right now, he's the most violent and the most dangerous and the most out of control teenager in this facility. She said he's been arrested 12 times in 12 months. He is uh, by far the, he is the hardest of the hard young people here. And she looks at me, she, she pointed her finger at me and she said, if Daniel received Christ tonight, that is truly a miracle. And I said, well, then we just witnessed a miracle, because I know who I spoke with, and tonight he accepted the Lord. So the following Monday, I was back in the facility, and Daniel set up the room for me. He was so excited to be back in the Bible study, because he was reading his Bible, and he was growing. The following day, he was released from the detention center, and the next Friday, some of the gang members that had been involved in his life before actually found him in the neighborhood They attacked him. He was attacked by seven gang members, and as he broke away to try to get away from all that trouble, one of them pulled out a gun and shot him multiple times. And he died as he was running away. He ran to the front porch of a house where people lived that he didn't even know. And they said he was slapping the door, trying to get someone to let him in, and they wouldn't open the door, and he died in a pool of blood. And I had an opportunity to, to go and speak at his funeral. And and the funeral was divided down the center aisle of this old 100-year-old church with gang members from one gang on one side and the other on the other side. And I was able to tell all of them that in the last few days of his life that Daniel had traded in all of this for a personal relationship with God. And it was incredible. And I can't even count how many teenagers have, have accepted Christ and been saved in the inner city of Indianapolis because Daniel gave his life to Christ. Wow, so challenging to hear that story about young Daniel today here on First Person. Our guest has been Ken Turner of Ken Turner Ministries, reaching troubled teens with a message of hope and love, the message of the gospel. I'm sure Ken and his team would appreciate your support, and you can connect with them by visiting our webpage, firstpersoninterview.com. We'll have links there to Ken's webpage where you'll learn more about what is happening, the resources available to you, and how you can network with Ken to minister to troubled teens in your community. Be sure to check out the Man Up study for teen boys who are fatherless. Go to firstpersoninterview.com. Again, firstpersoninterview.com. And then I also invite you to like our Facebook page. There you can comment on what you've heard today and see what other listeners are saying. We can be found on Facebook at facebook.com slash firstpersoninterview. Next week, we're going to reach into the archive for an interview with pastor, author, and Bible teacher Warren Wearsby. 
Now, with thanks to my friend and producer Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepherd. We'll see you here next week for First Person. <laughs>